Welcome to Watch Party Wheel of Time. I'm your host, Ruark, being joined by our panel. Say hello, panel. Hello, hello panel. Hello. This is our second episode where we're going to be uh, discussing an episode of the show, which is episode two, Shadows Waiting. This was written by Amanda Kate Schumann and directed by Uta Brisevich. Uh, once again, who also directed that first episode we just discussed. Joining us today, we've got Greg. Hello. David. Engage. DW is with us. Hi, And there's Siobhan. Hey, everybody. And uh, Axel and Samaria, once again, not able to make the recording today, but uh, we're, we're crossing our fingers, hoping they're going to make it for the next episode. So, uh, without any more ado, let's just get right into it, and I'll uh, start recapping the episode, and let's uh, let's have our some impressions. Uh, so we start off with the cold open. Uh, we swoop into this camp, all these stark white uh, tents and, and uh, soldiers walking around in white armor. Uh, what are we thinking? Well, I know uh, my wife's first impression was, oh, so we've met the Ku Klux Klan of this universe. And uh, I'm like, well, maybe not, because at first I thought it might have been the uh, Aes Sedai going off to fight, and then we meet them closer, and oh, yeah, that's about exactly what we're going on here. I got very strong Inquisitor vibes. Like, this is... This, I mean, the burning witch is at the stake. How yeah, much yeah, more? Yeah. <laughs> how much more clear can we be? No, no one, no one expects expects the Aes Sedai Inquisition. Is it right. exactly? Fear, surprise, and proud boy haircuts are three. three. <laughs> proud boy car- haircuts and cop mustaches. Yes. Yes. Uh, so yeah, we see uh, uh, this man in a white outfit uh, being served a, a little bird on a plate. While a woman is on a pyre in front of him, um, and he he uh, eats the bird, and the bird cuts open the interior of his mouth, and 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 he has a little gourmand experience while talking to this woman who's going to be slowly burning t- to death in front of him. Uh, what are we thinking at this point? So there's a there's a he he circles around her, and her severed hands are on a stump, uh, which tells me that that's how the Aes Sedai defend themselves. So first of all, he has to be incredibly powerful to even get her in that position in the first place. And second of all, the way that he has prevented her from rescuing herself is by cutting off her hands. So they obviously must channel their power through their hands. That's a, a very astute observation. I also um, wondered how a organization like this could come to be. Is this like the resistance and Aes Sedai are the political power and they're trying to fight against him. And I also kind of wondered, because they mentioned a war brewing in the first episode, who was that war between? And now maybe we find out it's these guys in the Aes Sedai, or maybe it's the Aes Sedai and the Trollocs. We're not really sure. All very good, very good observations. Um, the one thing I noticed in this this uh, little opening was him eating that bird, which is very reminiscent of uh, some uh, a dish called Ortolan which was uh, served in France, uh, they would take these ortolans, these little songbirds, and, and force-feed them grain until they were fattened, and then drown them in brandy, uh, roast them, and serve them whole. And uh, people would eat them under a napkin because that was, uh, it was hiding the decadence and their disgrace from the eyes of God. 
while they were eating this this little drowned bird. Yeah, I, I got that same. I got that same. You know, I, I'm familiar with that story as well. But to have that happen, but no shame, no disgrace, right into the mouth. It was like, hmm, these guys have got no compunctions about doing whatever. But they're they're clearly religious, though. You know, their entire symbol is the sun, and sun is light, and light is the deity of this world. So they're obviously some sort of religious cult at this point. And that amazing final shot, the reflection in the goblet with the fingerprints of blood on the goblet and her burnt, like that was such a well set up shot. Oh, there were so many. That opening shot, that swoop in uh, to only to come into the, the little server boy and pull back. And that was that was lovely. That was really well done. I was I got I, I just found myself thinking, how the hell did they do that? You know, it's like a drone and then somebody actually caught the drone and then walked backwards with it. <laughs> there, there was definitely was some amazing cinematogra- cinematography in this episode. I really yes. can speak, I swear. So that just led right into our credits. This is the first time we got to actually see the credit sequence in, in full. And I have to say this, these credits just blew me away. It was spectacular. Wow. Very, very well designed. And really sort of the kind of the, the, the trend for these extended credit sequences that have been happening with a lot of the streaming uh, and, and premium cable shows, they've been sort of monotonish. You know, they have like a really limited color palette, uh, you know, either like for Daredevil, everything is, you know, red and black right, and for right. Game of Thrones. Everything is sort of orangey and bluey and brownie. This just popped. It and Westworld was, yeah. was white and black. Yeah. yeah. This one very much reminded me of Westworld, but even better. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was beautiful. I had to watch it twice. That credit sequence was just terrific. Yeah, I loved how it, it it really referenced what I was talking about in in our intro episodes about the the core of the belief system here, where the people's lives are the threads in the pattern, and and they were showing that pattern being woven in those opening credits, and it, it just tied in so well with the mythology that I, I just was absolutely in love with. Although it was interesting, they didn't show the wheel itself in the credits. That is interesting. I hadn't even uh, realized that until now, but you're right. There was no wheel in the credits. Yeah. But we got to see the loom. loom. Yeah. The the fabric that makes up the wheel. That's it. Change the name of the show. It's got to be Loom of Time. (laughs) (laughs) Loom of Time. The warfed and weft of time. We're going to need a new uh, uh, podcast logo, the Loom of Time. So that leads us right into our first scene, which is uh, taking up right after our 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 ending last time, which was the the uh, group leaving the two rivers. And uh, we follow them; they're running along a river bottom, running through the the woods uh, until they eventually uh, get to a place called Terran Ferry, where it's a ferry across the river and out of the two rivers. Uh, they they wake the ferryman and they pretty much insist we've got to go and we've got to go now. Uh, they get across the across the the water and our shadow spawns show up. And I'm sure that Siobhan has a reaction to our shadow spawn showing up. 
Well, we found out they don't float. <laughs> yeah, but what do they do? Do they dissolve in water? Do they, there's a pile of them at the bottom. Like, I, I, I was left wondering what happens to them. I, I think they just drown. I think they just are very poor swimmers. There, are, there are no duck trollocks apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but that leaves me the wonder if at some point there are going to be enough of them that want to sacrifice themselves that they could all lay down at the bottom and eventually some would be walking on the top of the the bodies rather than the water. Make a dam out of Trollocs. Yeah, we've seen this with other movies and like uh, um, World War Z did this with climbing Mm -hmm. walls where enough bodies throw themselves at it that eventually you've got a ramp. So I'm 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 wondering if if they do just sink, then can they eventually do something like that? Well, I mean, the, these trollocs are we've seen uh, sentient and and do have a bit of a will of their own. So you know, it's going to take quite a bit to convince them to sacrifice their lives for this this trolloc bridge that you're trying to build. True, valid, valid. At the very least, they have the base instinct of fear. Right. So they're 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 pushing back, trying to avoid the thing that they're afraid of, while the Fade, we now have a name for it, is uh, riding up to the front of the line. And that that scene with the Trollocs pushing back from the edge, I I really love that scene. I thought it was very well done. It it really encapsulated their fear, you know, these these huge things that were just causing all this fear suddenly have terror in their own eyes. Yeah, and also highlighted what we talked about in the last episode of how really different they are across the board. Cause you had a bunch of short ones right there in front that were on two legs, not all fours mm-hmm. and a bunch of giants in the back and all different sizes. You know, I'm wondering when this show is going to depart from the same, uh, things we see in Lord of the Rings at the beginning, cause we're coming to a river and, uh, we get our high tower at the, in the, uh, <laughs> in the end of the episode, we are Literal. still following Lord of the Rings first book, first, uh, act. And I watched um, with captions, the ferryman's name is high tower. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I was trying to actually keep this under wraps to spring on you guys at some point, but you've already figured it out on your own. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. All of that was 100% intentional on Jordan's part. Uh, In the last episode, I told you that he had modeled it after kind of some some generic fantasy tropes in order to bring in new readers. What I didn't say there was he modeled it pretty much beat for beat after the beginning of The Lord of the Rings. Um, And we aren't to the end of those beats yet. But uh, you, you, you guys already uh, saw them, figured it out, and you can feel how, how well it brings you just straight into the story, because it's a story that you're already a little bit familiar with, with, with some new characters in it. So it, it, it's a good way to uh, suck in new readers and apparently now to suck in new uh, TV fans as well. Can't wait till we meet Aragorn. <laughs> One of the things that I noted, you know, is again, we're listing all the different types and varieties. The ones on all fours to get them looking animalistic in their approach, um, they end up doing a lot of them in CGI. And I feel like the CGI isn't dirty enough. Um, it, it, it's it's the only thing I'm finding that kind of removes me from things is when one of the CGI guys runs across the screen. I can tell that different than everything else going on. Right. So, I, it's the only sadness I have is I wish they could have dirtied them up enough that they blended more with the rest of the, the show. 
Yeah. But um, no, so very impressive. Even the CGI, and, and noting that the CGI is only being that drawing because the practical is so good. Right. I, I definitely noticed that in the scenes where they're tr- the Trollocs are running through the forest. Uh, it seems like a lot of them, if not most of them, were CGI, uh, mainly because they couldn't quite get the speed. You know, why, yeah. why didn't they just take the the practical effects and show the guys running and, you know, speed it up, speed it up in post or, you know, run it at a slower camera speed when they're yeah. recording at the first point. So, yeah, it, that did stick out a little bit to me as well. Hard to have actors run on all fours, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah, true. That one. Yeah. But even the ones that were on two legs, even the ones that weren't very, you know, they didn't have the, you know, giant backward knee, uh, <laughs> you know, satyr looking, uh, looking things going on. They, you know, they they tended to be CGI as well in that one or the, the, the in those scenes, in those shots of them running through the forest. So back to our recap, we've got our both our uh, practical and our CGI trollocs on the other side of the river. Um, and Moraine frees the ferry, um, which Master Hightower is upset about, and he dives into the river after his ferry. Okay, I, I got to touch on something with that. I get, you know, the, the family concept. The fact that he's able to swim to the ferry suggests that his son can also swim across. Right. So what he thought he was going to be able to do by swimming back and like trying to lift the the ferry out of the water made no sense to me. <laughs> yeah. It's like just find a way to get your son to swim. Like that that, that, that seems the and you know great granted panic you don't necessarily make the most logical choices. Yeah, I was going to say panic logic I think was in full effect here. I w- I would think too that one would assume his son approaching the dock and seeing what's going to go what's going on is going to say, maybe I'll take a different route. Bye now. <laughs> <laughs> there are... <laughs> Either that or he's already been killed yeah. by one of these things yes. as they came up. Yeah, 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 I'm not seeing his son showing up at the dock and just being like, oh, excuse me, excuse me, coming through, pardon me. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be fantastic. While they're all scared and he just like, pardon me, looks out in the water. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was uh, interested by the exchange between Egwene and Perrin after uh, the ship goes down and everybody's worried about the fact that Moraine has killed this guy. And Egwene was saying, we need to help him. And Perrin immediately said, no, he's gone. And it just really showed those characters values and those characters inner thoughts. Like Egwene really wants to help everyone and be the savior right in the moment. And Perrin is the one who's really practical and kind of unfeeling a little bit and possibly because he kind of shut off his feelings at this point. Not that <laughs> we can blame him. He's still a bit in shock after, you know, yeah. chopping his wife. So it was really a deep dive into those two characters in that moment with a small exchange. I think, I think too, there was a, a certain amount of showing the choices that Moraine is willing to make in order to achieve her goals, she really has to not care about anything else. Individual lives don't matter. The mission to save the world matters. Uh, I was going to say you wouldn't have her wanting to do the trolley problem. No. <laughs> you know, her question will be, which one will get me there faster? <laughs> I don't care how many people are on the tracks. When we see her later, she actually just justifies it away very quickly and very easily. 
by saying that it was his choice and not hers. Well, in a way it was, uh, you know, she, all she did was she basically gave the order, you know, uh, Lan was the one who cut the, cut the fairy loose. And then, well, she did actually did the whirlpool thing, but yeah, she did not kill him. She did not, uh, make him go. He went on his own accord and she tried a little to stop him. I believe she, she said, don't bother. Don't worry about it. And, uh, yeah, so she did as much as she could to stop him, I guess. <laughs> all things be, all things considered. As much know. as she could, I think, would include, like, her lifting him out of the water. It would seem like something her magic could do. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right there. But, um, you know, that's, that wasn't part of the, part of the goal. He's not one of the one of the ones who could be the dragon. He's not important enough to the quest. The horses she would heal because they're important to their goal. Oh yeah. And she needs every ounce of magic to keep everybody as rested as possible. No, I get that. Yeah. Which leads us directly into our next scene, which is them running uh, across some grasslands and and then uh, taking a break. And uh, Maureen uh, walks around and heals the horses. Um, make sure that the, they can continue to run on because uh, they are obviously tired from running all day long. And the uh, the the kids from Emmons Field they kind of get together and start talk about Moraine killing Hightower. Um, kind of very similar discussion to what uh, you all just had uh, following the the description of Hightower dying. And uh, talk a little of the history of the dragon. Uh, did you did you uh, pick up anything in that? Yeah, I I noticed that it was stated that the dragon was the most powerful channeler that had ever lived. So presumably among these four and five, if you count Nynaeve, there is the most channel, most powerful channeler again, even more so powerful than Moraine or anybody else in the Aes Sedai currently. DW, you have something. Yeah, going off of the fact that uh, you have not counting Nynaeve, uh, three guys, one girl, and there's clearly the uh, concern about men having access to weaving So that we saw in the very beginning of the very first episode. So the nervousness that must exist about what if one of the guys is the one who, who knows how to weave, because then the madness becomes a part of that. And get, getting back to that, that opening scene of the, uh, the first episode, he was being hunted by the Aes Sedai in, in red, correct? Correct. And we had a yellow Aes Sedai that was being uh, burned at the stake by the... By the, um, the White Cloaks. The White Cloaks, yes. And, you know, Moraine is in blue. Is there some significance to that? Is there some significance to that? Indeed. I was wondering if uh, anybody was going to pick up on the color schemes happening there. Yeah. It, it seems that uh, you, you do have some different, uh, you know, is she more of a healer? She kind of, you know, seems to have that, that power. You've got the, the red, uh, the red, I said, I just, uh, you know, acting as sort of a, a hunting party, sort of, uh-huh. so to speak. And who knows what the yellow one was doing? Some very, very uh, interesting and astute observations there. I put forward the yellow one was probably one of the eight that were sent to war, as the fact that he already has that knowledge that eight were sent. 
So the fact that probably the most recent that he had killed is one of those eight. Yeah, that that is also very astute observation. Uh, I hadn't even put that together. Um, But yeah, that's that's very interesting. Yeah, to jump ahead just a little bit to the collection of rings that the uh, the questioner inquisitor questioner the questioner um murray noticed that he had seven of them he had seven rings Mm -hmm. so is he looking for the eighth oh he's looking for the eighth that's for sure but is moraine the well well, i guess what i'm saying is is there possibly that like three of those were from a previous thing and he still has three that he's missing or you know or are all seven of those seven of the eight that were sent i don't know we don't know how long he's been doing at this game. Right. Is this the collection on this jaunt on this, uh, you know, excursion into the field that definitely brings up that question. He might have a whole trophy room. Yeah. That's just what he has since he, since he's been home. Yeah. All very interesting questions that uh, we will be readdressing later. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, back to our, our, our recap. Um, after yeah, I, I have one on the dragon conversation. Yeah, yeah. That they were saying um, the interesting one of the things I caught interesting was this the mention of wings. And there seems to be legend of whether or not the, the dragon has wings or, or something along those lines. Uh, the, the question there is, is is there a legend of that or, or is that Matt being Matt? True, true. None of you all have feathers, so I guess that none of us right. can possibly be. <laughs> He's, he, he still sounds like he's not entirely buying the entire premise of this story, but there is something chasing him, so he's going to run. Yeah, absolutely not. He's, he's, he's not buying it. He's not, he's not paying attention to the authority of Moraine. Uh, don't touch anything, yeah, I think Moraine or Land said. And yeah. later on, we find out that uh, yeah, he's not so good at following directions. Yeah, not, not so good at that at all. This episode brought to you by Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's the number four and cats with a K. Katie and Jordan have some lovely art they would love for you all to check out. They have custom bookmarks, prints, and even those beautiful book page posters that have passages from some of your favorite fantasy series like Lord of the Rings and Song of Ice and Fire, and of course, The Wheel of Time. You all really should check out Four Cats Boutique on Etsy and get yourself some bookmarks and amazing artwork. That's the number four in Cats with a K, Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. So back to our recap. Uh, everybody goes to sleep after they, they talk about the dragon. Um, and Moraine uh, wakes up uh, Egwene and takes her off on her own to uh, kind of talk to her about uh, channeling and the one power a little bit and kind of uh, talking about the three oaths and how channeling works a little bit. Did anybody pick up any uh, interesting tidbits here? Oh, just the reinforcement that words matter. Indeed, even in her talking to her about the oaths and what are the exact wording of the oaths. And, and, you know, it gives you kind of that feeling that, I mean, you get in some mythologies of, of can names also have uh, uh, strength? Can, if words are mattering, if words are part of the weaving, you know, how, how important are words and names and that kind of thing going to be going forward? Yeah, it also was mentioned, uh, she said that mind over power, that the mind and the intelligence of an Aes Sedai is way more important than the power they weave. And I, I'm wondering if possibly either she doesn't buy into the whole thing of all the men are mad and that 
they always have to be killed or if she think or she's justifying the fact that one of these three guys could possibly be it and she's got to figure out how to keep them from going mad in that because if the mind can win out over the power then at some point you have the ability to control what's going on there that that is an an amazingly astute observation that you just made there david thank you for that and uh one thing i wanted to point out from that scene is uh when moraine was was trying to teach Egwene how to embrace the the source uh, did you notice that her explanation about uh, uh, being in a river and, and, and mm-hmm. uh, laying back and, and letting the river take you? Uh, did that relating it you to anything? relating it to an experience she's just had, so she's going to be able to to relate to those instructions so much more clearly. Very much so. Very much so. And it feels like that's not the instructions given to every I said I. I think Moraine specifically chose those because I think she knows what the uh, women's circle uh, initiation is and that uh, Egwene just went through it and so was trying to to formulate it for her. Because words matter. Because words matter, indeed. Uh, So then we get uh, Egwene going back to uh, the group and Rand and Egwene meet up. Um, Egwene wants to cuddle with Rand, even though they're, they're kind of uh, on the outs at the moment. And Rand pretty much tells her to go away. So, Although uh, a little on the creepy side, because it wasn't quite cuddle. It was, I'm going to lie here and stare at you. That, that is very <laughs> true. <laughs> it's clear that she wants to talk to him and, and get her feelings out. And she's going to him for comfort. And he's kind of brushing her off at this point. Yeah. yeah. Well, to be fair, she did just dump him. And, and and also, to be fair, on the other side, though, Rand was a jerk in the previous conversations mm-hmm. to everybody. Rand needs a spanking. Um, <laughs> I get the feeling that, you know, we talked last episode about the fact that all the characters were aged up a bit for this particular version. And I feel like they aged up the the outward physicality of Rand, but the character still seems stuck in teenage years. Teenage right. angst, um, literally not seeming to be willing to accept another point of view, not willing to be uh, open to talking about something or giving somebody a chance to explain something. It's the rash uh, demand for answers and stuff like that. You know, it reminds me of the whiny Luke from uh, Star Wars that we get in Episode Four, um, and I kind of get that feeling that that hopefully something is going to happen to Rand that's going to make him grow up fast. <laughs> he's he's going to find some power converters and, and move on with his life. Yeah. Cause yeah. Tashi station is too far. <laughs> well, to be, to be fair to Rand, it, it's been like what, two days. He had his whole life mapped out. He was going to settle down, um, you know, marry Egwene and chase sheep butts over the mountains for the rest of his life. And, Every all of that has changed. Like every last little bit of that is out the window in the space of forty-eight hours. He's he's still processing. Totally valid, and yes, I agree. Uh, I, I feel that what I'm looking for though is a bit of a a like so is Egwene. 
she's processing everything that's happened in her world. Like he's, he is so focused on what his problems are and wanting answers to what he's going through that he doesn't seem to be open to the fact that they're all going through something right now. Oh yeah. Banding together is probably going to be a better move than I'm going to alienate everyone and brood over here alone. This, this also might be partially just because they've just introduced us to four completely different characters in order to kind of differentiate their personalities, you have them go through their processing in different ways. Rand is the one who's acting out. Egwene mm. is the one who's seeking connection. Um, Perrin is obviously going through Shutting a down. lot. He's yeah. he's very quiet, very reserved. And Matt is... Making fun of it. Almost, almost detached. Well, he's still in yeah. caretaker mode. Like, yeah. He gave the dagger to Perrin to subside his feelings he was the comic relief to the entire group when there was a serious conversation he's trying to care for the other three of them because that's what he does he's cared for his sisters forever he's cared for his mom and dad even though they're off doing their own thing he's still trying to be the caretaker right now yeah he's the he's the Al-Anon kid he's the the son of alcoholic <laughs> of alcoholic uh, parents and yeah, you know, he's 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 a 20-year-old. They're all 20 years old. You know, they they really they really seem like, you know, 20-year-olds even you know, even Rand, he's he's a little arrested uh developmentally, but uh he's he's still a 20-year-old, you know. I've I've known 20-year-olds that were no more than 14 at heart. Oh, oh, let's face it, we've all been 20-year-olds. We we know exactly what it's like. Yeah. Next, uh, Egwene, after Rand, you know, uh, kind of turns his back to her, she goes and finds Perrin and uh, asks the poignant question, will we ever go back? As far as Perrin's concerned, probably, no, I can't go back there. Not after what I've done. I really like these these little tiny moments where you show their friendship, the fact that these kids grew up together. Like, yeah. Gwen comes and sits down next to him. He takes his coat off and puts it around her shoulders. Like, yeah. just little tiny gestures like that. These people have a longstanding relationship, and I really like how they just weave that in. Yeah, I, I, I love that you're picking up on that because in the books, they, they really stress that level of friendship, these these. You know, they, they've all grown up together. They've known each other since they've had memories. So, you know, they, they know each other inside and out, and they are the closest of friends. And, and the fact that you're just picking up on that is, is awesome. Yeah, well, it's like having grown up in a small town, you know, sometimes the only people that are around are the people that are around. So it's exactly, like you're, yeah. you're friends with them, even though, you know, one's a petulant twit, one is a, uh, <laughs> one's a thief, you know? Right. But it's like, yeah, it's always been around, you know. So uh, then we move on into our next scene. We're back to Rand, uh, who wakes up and and starts coughing and uh, ends up coughing up what turns out to be a bat. At which point, I think we all realize we're in a dream sequence. Uh, We hope. We hope. hope. (laughs) I didn't. It took me by surprise. I kind of got the dream feel the minute he started reaching that far back in his throat. I knew something was coming out. I got like ring feelings or like the, the, uh, any of the horror movies where it's, where somebody ends up reaching and pulling out like a hair or yeah, something yeah. that, you know, is way too <laughs> long. End. Yeah. And so, and so I was waiting for what came out. The bat was definitely a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that it was still there when he woke up. Yes. That, yeah. that was also kind of shocking. But before he woke up, did anybody else 
notice something else. Uh, you see, you see the the form kind of materialize in front of him. He's being watched. Yeah, that was definitely aware of him. Uh, and any theories as to who that is? Well, there's always the dark one. I don't know if that's. You know, I don't know if at that point he, the Dark One, would know what you know. I'm going to say or... it's Mephisto. <laughs> <laughs> Mephisto. Hey, kid, let's make a deal. <laughs> I literally just thought of this. The first guy that was running away had an hallucinatory friend. Maybe that's a hint. That mm. Rand is the dragon. He's starting to see other people. Uh, and, and that might be his hallucinatory friend. Interesting. I like that. Okay. Okay. His hallucinatory friend who he pulls out from his throat is a dead bat. <laughs> he reverse. He has a reverse Aussie thing going on. <laughs> <laughs> he puts the head back on the bat. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he wakes up, finds that the bat's still there, uh, stumbles out of the little cave he's in, finds that there are many more dead bats and everybody else kind of standing around looking at dead bats and finds out that everybody has been dreaming of dead bats. And um, this Moraine says uh, dreams have power, a lot more power than you know. Yeah. And it's, everybody seems to have had a slightly different version of it. Was yeah. it... Uh, Perrin, who was talking about just seeing them just fall out of the sky with their necks broken, you know, so he had a different, it seems to have a different encounter with the bat. You know, it was more external than literally internal the way right. that, uh, that Rand had it. Well, Moraine asked pointedly about the guy with the red eyes. So obviously that's something that people experience when they're being corrupted in their dreams or being attacked in their dreams, whether that's a, a specific character that is pushing into your dreams or maybe a result of the magic coming into your dreams or whatever it is. It seems like that's something that always happens when this happens to you. Very much so. Yeah. Um, following up on that, uh, Rand, uh, being Rand is, is a dick to everybody again. Um, so much so that, uh, he actually gets a, a little bit of a response out of Lan, who who gets really protective to stand between him and Moraine. Uh, and Moraine just says, uh, fine, I'm done with you. I'm leaving. Goodbye. I, I, I think it's pretty obvious Moraine knows he's going to have to follow. I mean, they're still being chased. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Gwen gives him what for after after he chased <laughs> Moraine off. Uh and and there was a, a, a tiny little scene here uh, where Egwene tell, telling Rand off and telling him about, uh, you know, we just ran away from, from our home and our friends died. And, and she mentioned Layla dying at the hand of Trollocs and, and the look on Perrin's face. Oh, I noticed that. It was yeah. so pointed. And he terrible just, and deep. He's just being racked with guilt. Yeah, you can you can see the guilt just shooting through him at this point. It's interesting because I, something that he's doing that I often associate with with uh, bad actors, but it fits his character so much is he only looks out the top of his eyes. But it's a a head hung in shame kind of thing, mm -hmm. and not wanting yeah. to show that hand to anybody else. And so it's that protective look out the top of your eyes. But there are a lot of people who do it for no reason. Right. <laughs> With him, it actually makes sense and is a great choice. To attempt to look sinister, but no, this was this was this was a shame, absolute shame and guilt. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, everybody gets on their horses and finally decides they need to follow Moraine. Um, and as they leave, we see that Lan had stayed behind to make sure that they did, in fact, make the correct decision in that, that juncture. Uh, showing that Moraine did not leave so much to chance as we may have thought. I just want to say that this is the moment where I really, really dug Matt's character because of his response to Rand. You are completely right. This is all bullshit. Uh, Moraine is only protecting us because we are potentially useful to her, but one problem at a time, please. <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. like <laughs> be nice, be nice to the woman who is going to save us from the horrible monsters that are chasing us. We'll deal with the rest of it tomorrow. Right. And that is that is let, such a let a, her deal with the monsters first, then we'll deal with dealing with her. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is that is such fire. a very practical approach to problem solving i don't buy any of this but like we got to deal with the world the the situation that we're in and not the one we wish we were in so like let's just go (laughs) which really feels like a a product of his upbringing absolutely yeah well one of the things i know we talked about perrin and Egwene sitting and chatting around the fire um but we didn't touch on the fact of what Perrin was looking at right before she walked up, which was the bite on his leg. Indeed. Yep. That wound. So, and that I'm guessing from a trollic, but did, did we see in the fight? I haven't gone back and watched for it, but did we see something bite him in the first fight? I do not recall. I did not look for that personally. Yeah. I don't think it was a bite. I think it was more of a, just a wound from a weapon. Oh, it looked like a bite yeah. to me. It looked like it, upper and lower uh, teeth marks. It, it looks very much like a scratch to me, but it could be a bite as well. And I got yeah. scratched with like two claws. Like we're definitely seeing like a trollic poison start to emanate from it and move up. Yeah, I was thinking trollic poison as well, which is why my thoughts that it was a bat, I, a bite. I was thinking like, oh, does that mean the poison's also in their mouths and in their claws? And stuff are like are, are trollocs venomous is, yeah. is what you're getting to here. Yeah. Yep. No, I think it's more like um, we discussed I, I, before. I think that depends on if they're made from ven- a venomous animal. I mean, if, if, you, if you made um, a trolloc out of a platypus, it could be venomous. But only at the elbows. <laughs> only at the only elbows. Only at the elbows. Uh, so, uh, moving on, uh, they catch up with Moraine and, uh, then we discover some white cloaks, the same white cloaks that we saw in the cold open, uh, just come across them on the road. Um, oh, but before that, that really cool song. Uh, was that right before that? No, it's after it. No, right that's after, after. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's, that, th- that's, 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 that's a little ways up yet. Here okay. Yet. I thought that, w- I thought that was right before yeah. they met the red cloak. No, trust me. So. I'm not going to leave that song out. That, <laughs> okay. There's a lot to talk about with that song. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we run into the white cloaks. You guys already talked a little earlier about, uh, how interesting, uh, Eamon Valde is with his, uh, seven rings that they, that he's obviously taken from my Sedai. It's a little trophy belt. <laughs> you know, I was interested in, how Moraine tells them to behave before they actually meet them. And I noticed that she said, I am a lady from a fallen house. And if I remember correctly, the way that she said it, it had to be a true statement. Mm -hmm. So there's something from her character background that makes her a lady from a fallen house, which is interesting to me. Good catch. Yeah, that is an incredibly good catch because I didn't even catch that. And you have no idea how astute that observation actually is. So I found that whole exchange about you guys. This is what you have to say. 
this is what I'm going to say and basically shut up and let us handle this was really, really cool. Well, the, the thing I found interesting on the other side of that encounter is like we met the one, the questioner early on, but we hadn't met what seems to be, if not as superior, at least a leader within there that isn't directly over the questioner. So questioners are not all of what the white cloaks are about. Right. So now I'm really curious, what are the aspects of the white cloaks and how questioners fit in with them? Yeah, sort of like a just a subset, more like more like you know the the special intelligence. Yeah, exactly. Well, and to me, they're specific for finding Aes Sedai that are hiding in plain sight because the whole concept of having someone who can question an Aes Sedai and be able to interpret what they're saying correctly enough to say that this is an Aes Sedai, that's what I got from the questioners. Is that these guys, their whole purpose is to find Aes Sedai and they do it by asking the right questions so that the Aes Sedai absolutely has to answer something that gives them away. Yeah. Yeah. It's the opposite of the uh, two, two uh, guards. One always lies. One always tells the truth. Now it's the person <laughs> who needs to figure out is the person you're getting. Yeah. It was an interesting twist on that. Yeah. A little bit like Christoph Waltz's character in, in Glorious Bastards. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's kind of yeah. the vibe I got. So they're all all obviously all men. So um, I'm theorizing that they arose in opposition to the Aes Sedai because the Aes Sedai are just so powerful that you have this group of men that rise up in opposition to them to try and take some of that control back. Yeah, I got I got two different vibes. One was cultish and and uh, religious cult style and the other was a kind of resistance to the political construct oh great so they're the incels of the wheel of time world <laughs> yeah well no they're the proud boys they're just, uh, they're just straight up the proud boys uh so uh just to give you guys a little bit of lore about the white cloaks uh from what you were saying um you guys pretty much nailed everything directly right on on the on the mark the everything you said that's pretty much what the white cloaks are you you've you've nailed it and I think they, they laid it out well enough that you, you picked up all the pieces. Oh, good. <laughs> it means we're paying <laughs> yeah. attention. That's- yeah. yeah. Um, one little, little piece of lore uh, in the books, the questioners are actually uh, known as the hand of the light. Um, they very much tell people that that is what they are called, even though everybody else calls them the questioners. The questioners is kind of a, a pejorative to them. Um, even the other white cloaks call them questioners. Um, and they will almost always correct them and say, we are the hand of the light. Um, they apparently have left that out of this, but that's just a little piece of, uh, extra information about the questioners that kind of tells you what kind of, of people they really are. So they drink and they ask things. <laughs> Something like that. Yes. They eat tiny birds and they ask I was gonna say, they <laughs> eat, eat tiny birds that make them bleed. Yes. <laughs> so uh, we get away from the, the White Cloaks, and uh, Egwene confronts Moraine says, hey, you lied back there. And Moraine says, well, did I? Did she? No. No, it was a beautiful introduction into semi-truth. Yes. Into what people need to hear, answering the question very specifically. And hopefully, I'm guessing the characters are going to learn from her and are able to use that to their advantage in the future. I think that they're really emphasizing the importance of, I can't lie, but I can 
tell the truth. I can tell you what maybe you the truth in a way that you maybe hear what you expect to hear because that also partially came out in the conversation they had in the woods when she was showing Egwene the force. And then, you know, it's it's obviously going to be an important aspect of her personality through the story. Well, it really points to the ethics of Egwene as a character, that she's the one that really questions that up front. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she she's still a little skeptical. She seems like she knows that there is a there is some sort of power within her that she has the ability to grasp and you know that's what she gets from her hanging out with Nynaeve and getting you know getting the uh, the idea to become a wisdom so i think she realizes that there's there's definitely something there but she's not quite sure about all the other aspects of it to, to get to it, you know, to, to get to the point where you can speak that, that truth that is not actually true or the truth that will, will seem, I don't know. It's, I don't know exactly how to say it. it it's that it's sort of a, not quite a double talk, but it's, it's truth that could be interpreted as either a lie or the truth, depending on who's hearing it depending on the perspective yeah. of the listener. Very, very much so. Um, so. So continuing on our journey, uh, we see them kind of walking through the grasslands some more, and they kind of go back, go past some some big ruins that look like a maybe a viaduct or a, 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 a bridge of some sort. I'm sorry, what was that? That was an old Groucho Marx or uh, a Chico Marx joke. Viaduct, why not a chicken? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> You got me with the Groucho Marx joke. I love that. Ah, that was Chico. That was Chico. Chico. Oh, even better. They're definitely playing um, up the broken world thing a lot. Of You see tons yeah. and tons of ruins as we go by everything, and there's at least some level of civilization that's being shown to have existed in the past and, and now broken and gone. And and the age of everything as well. So I, I was actually in Italy once on a train, and the train was going through a field, and there were some old Roman aqueducts, just big broken pieces just sitting in this field with sheep grazing around it. And it was just incredibly impressive. Coming from, from a relatively new country, you know, we were like, what, 200 years of, Can- of Canada as a, as a country. Um, going through this field and seeing things and saying that's over 2000 years old and it's still sitting there and people are just kind of like operating around it as it's part of the, as if it's part of the normal landscape. It was just really gives you this impression of age when you see something like that. And it's just so normal that they've just left it there. And uh, as we continue on past those, those very interesting ruins, uh, Matt starts singing a song um, and and the rest of of his friends all chime in and uh, singing "Weep for Minethrin." Um, there he goes, being the caretaker again. He notices the awkward silence. So okay, yeah. I gotta gotta lift everybody's spirits here. Let's let's do this thing, and and everybody will be okay again. Ah, uh, there he goes, being the bard. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm I'm beginning to switch my feelings of him being a rogue character to him being a bard character. I don't know. The, the minstrels get eaten in the winter time, though. So <laughs> only if they work for Sir Robin. <laughs> I think I think that Matt's smart enough to turn down that application. So uh, they sing the beautiful song, and then uh, Moraine says it, it, it's good to hear the old blood, and, and Matt says, I don't even know who Manetherin is. So Moraine gives him a little bit of a history lesson and, and explains Manetherin. Uh, uh, did everybody pick up on that history lesson? What did you think about that? Oh, yeah, that it's yeah, their the town. That it, it's their hometown. Yeah. It's where they are from. They are from the area that used to be this grand city. They're from the two rivers, right? Yeah. And that's where Manetherin was. Exactly. And I, I really like the fact that the moral of the story is it's talking about how they are descended from people who gave everything mm-hmm. to defeat the dark the dark army that just like were slaughtered on mass and refused to surrender. There's a there's definitely a this is who you are, this is where you came from. Right, right. And I'm I'm starting to wonder if Moraine actually hails from that area at this point she knew about the the river ceremony and blue and water uh fallen house it really is kind of starting to lead into maybe she comes from the two rivers area initially how old is moraine well that's an a question that's going to be answered later on that i'm not going to talk about <laughs> well uh, and who, so know, probably, who knows probably about 100 so, yeah, yeah, if the magic can your, extend your life. I believe it is impolite to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so um, just a little bit of, of info from the book. The the whole story of Manetherin and the wheat for Manetherin thing, uh, that was actually a speech that Moraine gives in the center of town uh, when she first gets to town. Uh, gives it to all the townsfolk. And, and you know, they don't remember Manetherin, and she reminds them of Manetherin, gives that speech, and ends the speech with weep for Manetherin, weep, weep for the blood of Amon. And uh, I know a lot of people were looking forward to seeing her give that speech in the show, and when they started singing weep for Manetherin, I, I, I was in love. The, the, the way they presented this in, in the show is so good, and, and I, I really hope, I want to hear people covering this song just all over the place. It is so well done. Yes. Well, the neat thing it also does is it makes, you know, we're talking about legends, and especially, you know, you, you've spoken to us about the, the, the age of legends, and that idea that things have become so much legend that you know the song, but you don't know the true story. And... It's also been a beautiful thing I've seen in multiple uh, series that I've enjoyed, movies that I've enjoyed. Um, the one that comes to mind is um, uh, Walking Dead had several episodes where everybody would kind of sit around and sing a folk song. And it just kind of brought the lore and the, the history of this world having its own, or even sometimes ones we know, that can make you either parallel with their history or let you know that there is a history and that this is a deeper thing than you're thinking of. And so I really enjoy seeing that aspect because music is such an integral part of the cultures we know. And so seeing that this culture has its music, has its legends, and we're starting to scratch the surface of them. It's beautiful. All right, it circles back to Tolkien fantasy too, where you see a lot of the storytelling in Tolkien lore is done in song. 
And this reminds me of that. Yeah, very much so. Absolutely. Um, so uh, continuing on our journey, um, they, they set up camp for the night a little further on, and uh, Moraine confronts Lan and says, uh, we're skirting a little close to Shatter Logoth, don't you think? And, and Lan just kind of uh, is Lan and gives her a, a cool look and moves on with doing what he's doing. Foreshadowing much? Um, foreshadowing much? Foreshadar Logothing much? Maybe? <laughs> uh, that was a stretch. Uh, and uh, then we have uh, Egwene Rand off collecting firewood, and they get in another fight. What, what, what are we feeling are the chances on Rand and Egwene at this point? Slim to none. Oh, I actually think that it's almost given that they're going to get back together. You've spent so much time making us like, oh, they're fighting again. I'm, I'm going with, with Slim to none. Uh, she's seen the bright lights of the city, so to speak. How are you going to keep them down on the farm? You, you don't think that this is going to turn into a Green Acres situation? <laughs> <sighs> I've moved on past you, bub. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things right before this was also the conversation between um, Lan and Moraine about the rings on the questioner's belt. Right, right. And I thought it was interesting that Lan almost was worried that she didn't notice them and was like, hey, you saw those, right? We need to be worried. You saw those, right? So I, I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, um, moment between the two of them. Well, the fact that the first thing she did when she saw that they were the, you know, the white cloaks were ahead was she gave her ring to Lan. It's like, yeah, keep, keep this safe. So uh, I have a feeling she, she noticed I have a feeling she knew. I think that was probably a little bit of a, uh, that might have been a little bit of, uh, you know, just a, a, a nudge from the show to say, hey, you remember he was, you know, I know. Well, I, I agree it could be a nudge from the show, but I also find it interesting, like, even when somebody should see something and you know that they, like, you gave me the ring because you know that they'll use that to identify you. But, like, that moment of, you don't seem to be treating this as dangerous as I think it is. And so I'm going to mention to you about the fact that that guy had seven rings on his belt mm -hmm. and you are this close to being the eighth one on his belt. Right. So can we please like when she's worried about getting near uh, Shadar, like that's one of the things that I feel like he's like, look, we need to stop worrying about Shadar. We need to worry about the guy who's chasing you down. Yeah, we've got guys chasing us. We've got monsters chasing us. We've got all of this stuff happening. Maybe the safest place to be is the most dangerous place that nobody wants to go. You know, it's interesting that the show keeps putting an exclamation point on how overconfident the Aes Sedai are. Because this is, again, <laughs> that same thing of, hey, I'm your warder, and you are just bypassing this ridiculously dangerous situation and being way too overconfident about it. Yeah. All good observations. Then um, moving forward with the story, uh, we cut to Perrin, who's uh, suddenly finds himself surrounded by wolves um, while he's playing with the cut on his leg. Uh, Where's what, what, are, what do we think one? is going on here? <laughs> I have a theory. I was really into this scene. So I have been watching all of these kids for clues to see, you know, is any of them manifesting any ability? And um, that is the first sign that I've seen that one of the, that Perrin has an ability. He's obviously communicating with the wolves. 
he has or at least as a kinship kind of thing. Yeah. I got a totally different read on that scenario, but you can go ahead and finish Siobhan. No, I, I just, to me, it's like, okay, somebody is doing something um, that shows that he might have some kind of magical ability, even if it's, and, and maybe it extends to more than just wolves. Maybe it's other animals as well. And uh, the vibe I got was completely Chronicles of Narnia that we've got all this, this wolf pack comes up there seem to be ready to attack Perrin. And then all they do is go up and confirm that he's the one they're looking for and run away. And all of a sudden we've got Trollocs on our butt. Like these guys to me mm. were the informants, just like you oh. saw in Chronicles of Narnia, where the, the wolves were the guys that were out being the police and, and being the informants. I think they went back and, and told the dark one exactly where everybody was. Could be, could be like, you know, went up and licked the wound and it's like, oh, Trolloc poison. Yeah, these are the guys. So we have two opposing <laughs> theories here. <laughs> yeah. We'll yeah see, I was it. wondering if the lick wasn't something that helped cleanse it or something. If there's. Yeah, that was kind of the thing I got, too. It's like, it, 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 is he it, that that kind of goes to, to what Siobhan was saying, where he's some kind of communion with the wolves. Well, I, because he closed his eyes right before. The wolves stopped acting aggressively. He closed his eyes for a minute, and then the wolves calmed down, and the pack leader came up to to sniff at him. But I'm also specifically waiting to see the leg the next time, because I think that's going to help decide which of your two theories are right. Because right. if the leg is doing better, then, hey, the wolf probably helped. If the leg is looking worse and worse, then the, the lick did nothing, and I'm not sure. Maybe they are the, the informants. That they're believed to be. Yeah. I, I just assumed that the, the lick was something that, you know, dogs and, and other canines just do. Like, it's a, a, a way of checking you out. It's, a, oh, look, you're hurt. I'll give, it a, I'll give you a Band-Aid. Um, kiss to boo-boo, make it better. Kiss to boo-boo, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, the, the animals will lick their own wounds to heal them. There is some, something in the saliva that actually promotes promotes healing and you know maybe kills bad bacteria so you know if it's if it's that sort of thing then there's some sort of communion there's some sort of kinship with the wolves that the wolf recognizes oh he's one of us he's hurt let's take care of him yeah i didn't get i didn't that's an interesting take with the informer vibe uh you know it's like are you a bro? Are you a snitch? What's up? What's up, Wolfie? <laughs> I'm 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 really excited to find out which which uh, path it ends up being. Uh, are they yeah. bros or are they snitches? And I think, like DW said, having the the next time we see the wound, that's gonna that's gonna sell the tale. Well, let's let's keep an eye out for that wound uh, next time we see it. Everybody goes to bed after that, and. Uh, they wake up in the middle of the night to uh, the fade screaming at them from the top of a cliff, and they realize, oh, crap, the Trollocs are here. We got to bounce. And so they uh, jump on their horses. They run throughout the night. The sun is coming up, and uh, suddenly in the middle of the forest as they're running, their horses come to a dead stop and start freaking out. And they look behind them, and the Trollocs aren't coming any closer. And they're like, what is going on? Uh, what are we thinking at this point? 
that can't be good. Impressive shot. That's what I'm thinking. Yes, <laughs> that that was. Yeah, they look up and just see this giant wall with a crack in it, and uh, say, "Well, I guess that's where we're heading," and head right into the city. Um, they get into the city. They find a. It, it, it's kind of a, a rabbit warren in there, as it were, kind of a mess of streets hither and yon, and they they find what looks like an old cathedral to uh, set up for the night. Well, one thing on the crack, the fact that the crack has stayed solid, like it's not where where the wall would normally start to break from the top part and you get a wider break at the top yeah. than you do down at the base and you'd have some, it seems like a sword claim, like just went right through that, that happened to be able to cut it all. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so they, they set up in, in that that little uh, church area and Lan kind of gives him a little bit of a rundown on, on what Shatter Logoth is all about. Uh, and what'd you guys think of that? I think we listened to it better than they did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Going back to the uh, cut in the wall that kind of explained how that happened and the masses that are trying to figure out what happened to the people in the city went and continuously attacked that wall. So they must've done it in a, very clean and uh, orderly manner. I don't know if they were like pulling it out brick by brick or whatever, but they obviously made that crack pretty neatly when they were getting in there. Yeah, that's a, a very, uh, very astute observation. So Perrin makes the point that there's no birds and right. no bugs. The guy with the the theorized affinity to animals notices there's no birds. Mm. I also notice there's no plants. If you leave a town alone, it immediately becomes overgrown with, you know, trees and grass just breaking the sidewalk. And there was none of that. Right. Right. Hmm. So what, so why is that? What's going on? Maybe we'll find out. Only stealing the dagger that you're not supposed to, yeah. will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so little foreshadowing there. So land tells them, uh, don't touch anything. Don't be dumbasses. And they immediately all, uh, scatter and decide to explore the city and be dumbasses. Um, That's uh, very 20 years old. Yeah. <laughs> uh, very, yeah. Very 20 year old, uh, reaction to the situation. Uh, Rand and Gwen have a, a sweet little moment looking over, out over the, the ruined city. Uh, it seems like they're they're on again again at this point. Um, and uh, Matt and Perrin have their own little sweet moment. Uh, Matt gives Perrin a knife that was made by his wife Le- Layla, and uh, he handed it to her and said, "She she doesn't make weapons; she makes tools." And and that's what this knife was was a tool that she gave him to use. And he gives it to Perrin to remember her by. Uh, what what do we think about this scene? Well, and to protect uh, Perrin as as Matt's story goes that you know to protect those around him which he knew which she knew at some point would be Perrin because Matt would probably be the cause of trouble which I took two things from (laughs) one I loved the fact that in that moment you have such sadness over Perrin because he's still not gonna be able to deal with that and watching him try and, and compose himself in a moment of like wanting to scream out, you know, it was my fault. I kind of got that vibe. But um, at the same time, it felt also a bit reminiscent of the the moment in the previous episode when Lela uh, touched his finger and like as they were sleeping. And that moment of I can't really 
I, I, I don't feel comfortable showing that I do care about you except in these little moments. And this feels like another one of those little moments where she did care about him mm-hmm. and just didn't know how to go about it or what was weird about it or all the, but like she gave this to Matt to protect parent. And the other thing I got out of it real quick, and then I'll let somebody else chat, um, is the fact that he immediately goes, you can't blame me for this. And I did in the, in the second watching that I realized that everything that happens afterwards is his fault. <laughs> so it's so funny that he, like an idiot, immediately says, you can't blame me for any of this, and then goes out and does the thing that everybody should blame him for. <laughs> You can't blame me for this and up until now. Everything after this, you can blame me for. But up until now, I am blaming exactly. <laughs> This moment right now. Now. <laughs> well, it's interesting that he gives away the tool and then goes and immediately finds a weapon instead. That, uh, is, yeah. that is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, isn't that very interesting? Well, I also found it interesting that he was getting the whispering, which I think, again, um, as we've seen with the the first guy we ever saw with the, the invisible person and as the theory that Siobhan was offering of the the person that Rand saw was the madness, uh, Matt started hearing the madness, I think, the whispering telling him to pick up the, the knife. His whispers are already in the back of our mind. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Begs the question that maybe all of them are kind of channelers on some level. They're just not the one that is the most powerful channeler yet. Here's a question. Um, in so b- because I'm not familiar with the religion, is it possible for a soul to come back in more than one person? Is it possible that they are the four of them are the dragon? Is it possible? Hmm. I don't know, is it? These and other questions Ruark will not answer for us yet. (laughs) (laughs) He could, but he won't. He will answer us, but he will not tell lies in how he answers <laughs> us. And we'll still but not know. He will not they, they tell will you not, the truth they will not that you tell us to hear. They will not tell us a lie, and we still will not know the answer. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, yeah, we, we, we saw Matt, we saw him be a dumbass as we were talking about listening to the voices and, uh, he goes and finds a dagger and then, uh, we hear one of the horses screaming and Matt comes running back to where everybody else is. And we see a horse getting what looks like eaten by darkness. Such a great effect. Oh, yeah. Such a fantastic <laughs> effect watching the horse melt. And I know no horses were harmed in the creation of that scene, <laughs> but so beautifully done and probably CGI, but done better than the Trollocs I have complained about. Yes. Done better than the, uh, the dusting of uh, Avengers Infinity War as well. Is that it? Did the dark one get the gauntlet? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, the the darkness eats this horse. They all freak out and go, whoa, get away from the darkness and uh, end up getting split up because the darkness is is dividing them. Uh, So everybody kind of runs in separate directions. Uh, We get uh, uh, Rand and Matt together. We get uh, Perrin and Egwene together and we get uh, uh, Lan and Moraine together. Um, and they all 
make their way out of the city in one way or another um, and scatter in different directions. Um, any thoughts about that that scene at all? Well, isn't it interesting that uh, Lamb and Moraine are able to just kind of waltz back out the entrance because they stayed where they were supposed to and their horses <laughs> didn't die? <laughs> but I also, again, it's just it cycles back to the Tolkien beginning of now the fellowship is broken and everybody scatters along their merry ways. And, and, and this is pretty much the point where the, the, the Tolkien beats uh, kind of stop and we kind of start our own story from this point forward. Oh, because I was waiting um, to find out if Egwene or Rand was Samwise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also uh, liked the convenient water that we end up with after jumping off of a wall. Oh, yeah. That was very, very deep water for being right up next to a wall. Well, and the fact that the two others come out to very, very shallow water. So that, like, (laughs) near this same wall, you know, there's proximity. They happen to have the jumpable section and the not jumpable section. Yeah, they well, just you, have, have, you have to have a, a kiddie pool and, and a, an adult <laughs> section, so, you know, it, it, it makes sense. That's a good yeah. thing that they laid out that this is a very large city for us. Yeah. Right. Um, so we see Lan escape with, with Moraine and, and uh, takes her into the woods, and Moraine is in a very bad, bad uh, condition by this point. The, the sickness from her injury has, has pretty much rendered her useless. Uh, she's not even awake. Uh, at this point, and uh, suddenly, out of nowhere, we get a knife against Lan's throat. And uh, who is it? I knew she was alive. I knew she was alive. <laughs> I shouted when she appeared on screen. <laughs> I was like, "Yes!" You can never trust a death that does not happen on screen. Exactly. <laughs> it was really funny because my wife and I were watching the show and. She's listened to the podcast, and so she had heard Rurark's explanation that there were five uh, possible dragons. And she's like, at this point, for some reason, she realized there were only four in this fellowship. Where's the fifth one? And I'm like, oh, well, the fifth one is Nynaeve. And there she was, right on the screen, popped up right <laughs> in the bow, and <laughs> Speak of the devil. And so conveniently, a healer. So conveniently. Is she powerful enough? So what do we think of Nynaeve at, at, at this point? I am so happy to see her back. I, I love her character. And how did she escape all those Trollocs? That's what I'm wondering at this point. Yeah. How did she get there? I'm guessing that blade, because of how jagged it is, was a Trolloc weapon at one point. So I'm, she probably mm-hmm. fought her way out. Well, what abilities does the wisdom have that we aren't aware of yet? Yeah, is she listening to the... Is she trapping them on the wind? You know, because she's, she's there. The Trollocs were just there a few hours earlier. You know, did she track the Trollocs? Like, escape back in, back in town, kind of track the Trollocs uh, to get to where, to where everybody was. Well, in all honesty, all of the talk of... Um that the Trollocs are targeting the four of them. The fact that they took Nynaeve is a, uh, a good indicator that she is probably also one of the ones that they are, are there for because everybody else they killed on the spot. Right. She was the only one they grabbed by the hair and took with them. 
Well, I hadn't thought about it until now, but it's we don't know how deep her channeling power is because they talked very clearly about her master being fairly proficient in magic when she goes to the White Tower. It's like, okay, well, maybe she actually figured out how to channel pretty well and taught that to Nynaeve. Might, she may be as powerful as an Aes Sedai at this point. Maybe as powerful as an Aes Sedai, you say? Possibly, possibly, and just mistrustful of the entire system. She doesn't want to work for the man, man. Or the woman, so to speak. Whoa, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I think on that note, we'll call this an episode. That was the uh, end, of, end of the episode that we watched. So uh, we'll just move on into next, next episode, uh, episode three from the series that we will be uh, discussing tomorrow for us uh, whenever it comes out on the podcast for the listeners at home. Uh, join us then. Um, and we want to give, of course, special thanks to Michael and Jen from Watch Party. They make all of this possible. Uh, let's let's give a big thanks to Michael and Jen, everybody. Hey, thanks, Michael thanks, and Jen. Michael. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. And, of course, huge gargantuan thanks to our audio editor, Jordan Rennells, uh, Jordan, also, thank you so much from the bottom of all of our hearts. Thanks for putting up with us. Jordan. Uh, this has been a production of Watch Party Podcasts. Final word from our guests. What object is going to turn you into a dumbass to take from the Forbidden City? Oh, tequila. I mean, I don't even have down, to think about that one. Have the tequila that just makes you a dumbass. Which is it cause or effect? Which, the, the, which it, well, well it, it's a flat circle, remember? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's true. All a flat circle. Yeah, yeah, I'd say a shot glass of uh, booze for me, too. It, it, yeah. It's funny because uh, the, the city's turning a little bit into the bar in The Shining. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'd like to thank my sponsor, Bullet Rye. Uh, <laughs> Wait, your sponsor? Episode. Your AA sponsor? <laughs> <laughs> I'll never tell. It's anonymous. Well, I'm not juiced right now, so I would pick up a lightsaber for sure. A lightsaber that talks to you. Who are you, Ray? <laughs> <laughs>